Doing good? Yes, exactly. I want to encourage you to share the stream. So if you are following us on uh, Facebook at all, that's really where our stream is going right now. Um, if you would share the stream, that would be awesome. Uh, we're doing a uh, series on virtue. Where's Mimi, by the way? Where'd she go? Oh, in the, in the corner? Hiding in the corner? So we pray for Mimi's goddaughter. You guys know at Easter time, right? And I tell you the story about the, the girl that started running. I just asked Mimi. I said, can she still run? She said she can still run. So anyway, anyway, the girl has brain damage. Is she here? Is Cassandra here? No. No? She's not here. Okay. So anyway, nonetheless, we prayed for this girl. Um, uh, one of the most recent glorious moments. We've had a few. But um, she didn't know the Lord. Mimi's begging me. Oh, please, Pastor. Please talk to my goddaughter. Like, I talked to her. She's nice. She's a good girl. She's like, she doesn't know the Lord. So I go over and talk to her, and she basically tells me, you know, I, I don't want to hear anything about the Lord. I don't, please don't talk to me about God. And I said, well, what, is it okay if he talks to you? Is that all right? And she said, yeah, sure. So I gave her a word, and, and um, she started opening up her heart and telling me about all this really terrible things that she had been through, and in particular how she has had a lot of, uh, she was in an accident, and she had a lot of physical damage, and long story, but the, the, the glory is as we prayed for her, stood at her feet, and the Lord's like, uh, I could feel the Lord wanting to pray for her. As soon as she started talking about it, I felt the power of God. I'm like, oh, man, I know Jesus wants to pray, and I know he wants to minister. And um, I asked her, I just, so I asked the Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do? And he said, ask her whatever's wrong with her, the first thing that comes to her. And I said, of all the things that are wrong with you, what's the first thing that comes to you? And she says, I can't run. So long story short, we pray for her, and the girl starts running. Because she had brain damage, so she said when she runs, she would fall over. Oh, come on, somebody's got to get excited about that, Right? You're not getting this on Dr. Phil, right? <laughs> Miracles happen. You understand that, right? This isn't every day. This is every day. Elevate. We believe that this stuff has happened. This is a lifestyle. This isn't some miracle that we see once in a lifetime. This is stuff that we see all the time in our lifestyle. That's what we believe. So we're doing a series called uh, Virtue. And uh, what's virtue all about? So the idea of virtue is an, is an atmosphere of excellence in which the kingdom can come forward. If you don't know this and you're a Christian, you're, you're brought into the kingdom or the reign and ruling, ruling reign of Christ. And, and, up, and into that ruling reign of Christ, you're given promises. And into that ruling reign of Christ, you're given an inheritance. And one of the reasons why we not only, most Christians can't manifest their inheritance, you're, you have an inheritance. That's the first thing you need to know. It's the first thing you need to know. I think that's our new mantra. Like it was identity, now it's inheritance. So you need to know your inheritance. Every believer has an inheritance. Say this with me. My inheritance as a believer is in his name. All of God's, God, the Lord gives you, anybody ever heard of the names of God? Some of y'all here, right? The Lord gives, a, he has the name of Jesus. So in the name of Jesus, our inheritance is salvation and eternal life. But God has compound names. He has Jehovah Rapha, which means the Lord, my healer. Healing is, the, healing is the sons and daughters' inheritance. Jesus said it's the children's bread. Jehovah Jireh, provision is your inheritance. Most Christians, we have an inheritance that's found within his name. The inheritance has to be activated. The inheritance is different from your destiny. Your destiny is, comes through an entirely different lane. Your inheritance, you don't have to do anything for it except activate it. It's like having the keys to a Ferrari and you don't know how to turn it on. Right? you got to learn to get in the Ferrari and learn how to start the engine. That's your inheritance. That that's what all believers are given the inheritance. That's part of the benefit plan that comes in Christ. But inheritance and destiny are two different things. Your destiny has to be pursued and your destiny has to be partnered with. 
And one of the ways we, we bring destiny forward in our lives and we be, begin to bring forward the things that God has created, you're created on purpose with a purpose. You were created for good works before the foundations of the earth in Christ Jesus. Every Christian has a destiny. You're like, what is it? That's again, isn't that the question? That's the art form. And one of the ways we manifest into the dominion or the kingdom of God in our life or we bring forward the spiritual power that we possess is we create an atmosphere of excellence. And the atmosphere of excellence directly relates to virtue. I'll read it for you. His divine power. So what, what basically is happening here, we have the inheritance and then Paul is direct, or Peter is directing us into the promises. Paul talks about the same thing. He talks about the provision of God or the destiny of God being in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Peter says it's not just in the heavenly places spiritually drawn from, but it's also in the promises. And so Peter is telling this church, God has given us promises. Would you say this? The Lord has promises. He say this, his word is filled with promises, right? So we do this dispensational doctrine within our churches and we say, well, those were the promises then and those were the promises for yesteryear, but those promises don't apply. Really? Second Corinthians one, all of the promises in Christ Jesus are yes and so be it. All of the promises. If there is a promise in the affirmative, you can have it. You can have it. It belongs to you. How big's your faith, right? God's limited not by himself, he's limited by you. Jesus couldn't do a lot of miracles in Nazareth. Why? Because people didn't believe he could, right? The son of God himself limited in the power that he can manifest because the people weren't willing to partner with what he said he could do or would believe it. So here it is, 1, 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, everything that you need for life and everything you need to follow him is already provided for in the heavenlies and through the promises. Through these, he has given us very great and precious promises that we draw from his nature. So what, when then what, Paul's, what Peter's going to say here, for this reason, apply to your faith diligent, or apply to, add to your diligence faith and to your faith virtue. In other words, what he's saying to them is this church is in agreement. Yeah, we've got, we've got promises. Yes, we've got promises. And so what Peter's encouraging them to do is have the diligence to go after the promise. That's number one. Then the second thing he says is have the faith to go after the promise. Promises don't manifest by default, Christian. It's not Reader's Digest. You know, oh, I believe the promise. Boom, here you go, balloons, confetti, here you go, have your check, happy day. Every, you know, it's all done for you. It's not done like that. That's not the way it works, right? We have to pursue and activate the promises. And so this church is saying, he, Peter's saying to them, you have, these are the promises, have diligence to go after them. Everybody say, have diligence to go after them. You know what it looks like? Rag on your head and knife in your teeth. And it says, I'm willing to contend and fight for what God told me I could have. I'm willing to activate the promises that are given to me as a right of inheritance or as a right of my destiny. If Jesus paid blood for you to have access to the promises, you ought to value it a little more, right? That's another story. So, the, so he's saying you need to pursue the promises and then you need to have faith for the promises. But not only do you have to have faith for the promises, you need to have virtue. Virtue, say it with me, virtue is an atmosphere of excellence. There are principles, most Christians have the faith in the promises, but they can't manifest the promises. Why? Either one of two things is happening. Either you are not meeting the condition of the promise. Inheritance is entirely different. Inheritance is activated. You just gotta know how to activate the inheritance, right? But promises require a condition. 
Given it shall be given back to you. Pressed down, shaken together, running over. Will God cause people to pour onto you? What's the promise? God's going to have people pour onto you. What's the condition? You got to give, right? Call upon me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you know not of. What's the promise? I will show you great and mighty things that you not of. I will give you access to revelation and understanding that is beyond your peers. I will make you wiser than those who are around you. I will show you insights into things you would never understand on your own. That's the promise. What's the condition? Exactly. If you don't ring, ring, there's nobody's going to, it's not coming. Jeremiah 33.3 is God's phone number. You want Jesus' phone number? Jeremiah 33.3. So call up the operator. Yeah, give me Jeremiah 33.3, right? Call upon me. And I will answer you. If you don't call upon the Lord, well, the Lord's just going to answer me in his own good time. No, he's not. No, he is not. If you don't call, he's not answering. Let's be clear, right? So God gives us promises that are activated through the things, through meeting the condition. And then he gives us promises through creating the atmosphere of virtue. The atmosphere of virtue is excellence. Excellence is the environment in which the kingdom comes forward. I'm called, so here it is. Somebody gets a word from the Lord. So let's just talk about a couple of the virtues. Honor. If you do not honor the Lord, you will not access him. If you do not honor the word that God has put upon your life, you will not access it. If you do not honor those around you, you will not access it. Doesn't matter what the Lord says. If you do not create the environment into which these things can come, it's not happening. And we talked about honor. Another one is courage. You can say, the Lord has called me to be an evangelist to the nations. God has called me to proclaim his word from sea to shining sea. But if you do not create, A, the, the honor that, that, word, that comes with that word, B, you don't create the environment, courage, if you don't cross the chicken line and you don't step into it, it's never happening. Lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. Not if you don't lay hands on the sick. Not if you don't pray for the sick. Well, I'm too afraid. That's your problem. You are not able to create the environment of excellence into which the kingdom can manifest. You see how this works? This is how this works. And so what are some of the, what are some of the, uh, what's going on with my mic, man? What, what are, so what are some of the virtues? I'm going to give them to you. So we have honor. We have justice. We have uh, self-control. That's another one, right? And we have courage. Those are just a few. We have to create these things in our life. We have to live a life of honor. We have to live a life of courage. We have to live a life of self-control, self-mastery. Can I get a witness? How many times have you disqualified yourself from the thing that God wants because you can't control you? Anybody? Anyone at all? Right. You know who our biggest enemy is? Us. Right? And so then the other thing is, is justice. God says, you say, Lord, I want your power. I want your power. Do you know, understand how to use my power correctly? Because that's what justice is. Justice is the right use of power. Injustice is the abuse of power. Justice is the right use of power. You want more? If you don't create that environment, you're not going to get it. If you think the power is all about you and for your glory and your personhood, it's not coming. Not coming. Because you're disqualifying honor and you're manifesting injustice. Justice is the right use of power. Justice is not about you. It is having the power to bring change and using it without your own agenda for the benefit of others. That's what it's all about. So this is what the series is about. We're going to talk today about courage, right? So we talk about honor. Been talking about honor. You want to get that? You can listen to it. We have it. So I mean, look out on Facebook. You can find it. We probably have the podcast. Alex can connect you to that too. Um, but we're going to talk about courage. I want to say this: courage, courage. is not, not the absence of fear. fear. It is the absence of self. Courage is not the absence of fear. 
How many times do you do something courageous and fear is present with you? Courage is not the absence of fear, it is the absence of self. It is a willingness to do something that is beyond yourself. It is a willingness to see value and risk beyond yourself for something greater than yourself. Courage is the absence of self, to live a life beyond yourself. The word courage actually comes from the word heart. So if you really want what it means, it means to live courageously from the heart. That's what it means. How many times do we not live who, the, who we really are? We don't live courageously. We live who everybody else says we are. We live who everybody else thinks we are. We don't live who the Lord says we are. Listen, Jesus is going to call you out, and he's going to tell you who you really are. Guess what? You don't really even know who you are, but he does. He does. And he begins with simple understandings, like son and daughter. It's a very simple understanding. To live courageously from the heart. I'm a son of the highest. I live according to that courage. I live according to the identity my father has given me. That's a life of courage. What does my father want? I'm a son. What does the Lord require of me? I'm going to live as a son before my father in the manner that he has called me to. And I don't give a crap what other people think. You're living a life of courage, right? This is what it looks like. So we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about one of the guys, most courageous guys in the Bible. Uh, actually, and you're going to get an idea of this. We're talking about Gideon, right? So we're going to use Gideon this morning. And so let me get, just set the scene. So if you want to read it, you want to read the, the chapter that I'm pulling from. I don't have time to go through all of the verses, but it's Judges chapter 6. And so the scene is, so here's the deal, right? I want you to say the Old Testament is a mirror and an instruction for the new. Not in everything, but in some things. Bible says that, that the things that happened to Israel were given to us as examples, Israel was called out of Egypt. Egypt is a type and shadow of sin and bondage. Pharaoh is a representation of the devil who held the people in slavery and sin. The Passover lamb, the blood, ultimately points to Jesus, who by the blood and the people embracing the blood of Christ and embracing the, the, the offering of the lamb will be able to come out of Egypt and cross the Red Sea into promises, right? So the first place they did was they received Christ in their heart, if you really want to get technical, and then they came out and crossed Sinai, leaving their old world behind, and they came into access with his presence. So if you want to know the journey of the believer, it's not just salvation, right? The first, the first place is salvation. So we all come out of the Red Sea, we cross the Red Sea, we leave our world behind. When you receive Christ, that happens instantly. But the second phase doesn't happen instantly. God brought them to Sinai and exposed them to his presence, and most people, and what's, what's true about that story is that most of those Israelites could not accept his presence. They were too freaked out by it. And so they began to live a life at a diminished level, right? The Lord exposed them to power. Read the story. Jesus brings them out of captivity, brings them out of their bondage, and what does he do? He exposes them to power. Power. And what happened? The people retreated from power. They retreated, and they lived diminished lives because they would never embrace the power that God had set before them. But then once God, they rejected his power, so it goes from coming out of sin unto his presence and then into promises. They crossed the Jordan, and when they crossed the Jordan, they were commanded to go in and seize the promises. Prom the promises had nothing to do with their salvation. The promises, if you really want to get technical, had nothing to do with his presence. His presence was the added bonus, and most Christians and most churches today can't embrace power. It's mirrored in the New Testament, right? What did Jesus tell his disciples? Stay in Jerusalem until you what? Come on. Come on. I got any Pentecostals in the room? I got any, I got any spirit-filled believers in the room? Stay in, stay in Jerusalem until, you're, until what happens? Until you're exposed to power. Don't do anything until you're exposed to power. 
Christ brings them out of their sin and sets them in a room and says, don't do a thing. Same mirror as Sinai. Same mirror. It's the exposure to power, the exposure to the Holy Spirit, and the fullness of everything that God has for his people. You should not retreat from the Holy Spirit, Christian. That's the last thing you should be doing. Jesus does, don't do anything until you embrace power. Now, they didn't have to embrace it, but once they embraced it, then God says, now, go forth, right? They didn't have to. Most Christians live diminished lives because they will not acclimate themselves into his power. And I'm not talking about jumping chairs, clucking like chickens, and barking like dogs. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the true, meaningful, living activation of the glory of God within the life of the believer and the ability to manifest kingdom. Don't talk to me about power if you cannot manifest kingdom. If you cannot manifest king's dominion, there's an issue. That's another story. But God brought them out, and he t- so he comes, they come out of Egypt. They expose the power. Whoa, whoa, this is way too much for us. If you really want to know what he exposed them to was the prophetic voice, and they rejected it. They said, you don't speak to us, Lord. We choose Moses. And so the Lord said, okay, you choose a diminished life, then I'll give you the diminished life. Moses will now speak to you. They rejected his voice. That didn't mean they weren't saved. That didn't mean they weren't his people. And God still brought them into promises, right? So God brings them into promises, and then he tells them, I want you to contend for the promises. But they settled in the land. God said, I'm going to bring you into this land, and when you're in this land, right, so now I want you to take full possession of what I've given you. I want you to drive the enemy out of all of these areas of your life. I want you to drive the enemy out of all of these areas of your life. If you don't drive the enemy out of the areas of your life, the enemy's going to stay there. And that's exactly what happened. They, they said, God said, go in there, and I want you to drive the enemy out of your finances. So how does this relate in real terms, right? What areas of your life? This, is where, this again, we, we can see this in real time, even in, within the kingdom today. We have Christians who are born again, but the enemy inhabits their finances. We have Christians who are born again, but the enemy inhabits their relationships. We have Christians who are born again, but their vision of the future and their visions of their own lives are, are inhabited with false nonsense, right? Families inhabited with false nonsense, Why? Because we have not taken up the responsibility and quest into the knowledge through the power to drive the enemy out of our homes. We're lazy. Well, if God wanted the devil out of my house, he would already be out. No, he's not. He ain't not going anywhere. That devil's going to sit on your couch and eat Doritos. He's going to raid your pantry until you develop the identity, the fortitude, the power, and the understanding to how to get that guy off your property. If you don't do it, it's not happening. It's not happening. This is exactly where Israel was. They didn't drive the enemy out of areas of their life. As a believer, you're supposed to sanctify areas of your life. You're not supposed to do your money the old way. You're not. You're not supposed to do your body the old way. You're not. You're not supposed to do your lifestyle the old way. You're not. You're not supposed to have the friendships that you have the old way. You're not supposed to have the family that you had the old way. And you're not supposed to have a vision of the future that you had the old way. Those are the areas of your life where you've got to drive the enemy out. Faith, family, finances, friendships, and future. Real easy. F-bombs right there. Boom. In the house. (laughs) And so the Lord says to them, I want you to drive the enemy out of these areas. And they go, nah. We don't need to. Nah, 
We kind of like it like that. And as a result, they, became, they allowed the enemy to stay in their life. And when the enemy stayed in their life, they became confused and deluded. Confused and deluded. The enemy cannot be managed. The enemy cannot be agreed with. The enemy cannot be subdued. The enemy must be driven out. There's no argument here, right? We're not making debates, and we're not making covenants. You're going all the way. There's a guy here talk about losing parts of his business, and he came to me, and he said, if I could only keep a portion of it. I said, why would you want to keep a portion of it? I said, did God give you all of it? I said, yeah. And I said, then why are you going to make a covenant with the devil to keep a portion? I said, the Lord is moving in deliverance for you, and the enemy knows it. And so he's coming to you to try to make a negotiation with you so that you'll strike a deal with him to only keep a portion. And he'll take the rest. I said, did God give you all of it? I said, yeah. Then I said, put faith on it and believe God that he's not going to take anything. That devil's not taking anything. We're going to find out what his right is, what's his right in the first place. We're going to break that right. And then we're going to put faith on this thing. And that devil's not going to take anything. And that's exactly what we did. He just told me before he left town. He said, it looks like I'm not going to lose anything. (gasps) Kingdom power, Christian. Stop making covenants. Stop making agreements. Well, I'm only going to take one of your children. Okay, so you're going to leave the other one? Okay, I'll take that deal. You're not taking any. I'm only going to take one of your ovaries. Wrong answer. You're not taking any of my ovaries, my wife said. Ah, She had a tumor on her ovary, blah, 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 whole nine, going to the thing. I'm freaking out like, "Ah!" man of faith and power had no faith and power in that hour, Right? And I'm like freaking out. And the doctor's like, don't worry, Sherry, we got a robot. I'm like, they got a robot? Yeah, it's robots, painless. We're just going to come in there, you know, like pluck it like we're plucking cherries. We're going to take it right on out of there. You'll be fine. It'll be a recovery. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be good. Doctor's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sherry starts telling the doctor all this other stuff. We walk out of there, and I look at her, and I'm like, what do you think? (sighs) What do you think? And Sherry goes, I feel great. I feel great. I go, why do you feel great? She goes, the devil's not taking my ovary. It's like, he's not taking my ovary. She's like, I'm not making that agreement. And I'm like, exactly. What covenants do you make, Christian? Stop making covenants with an enemy who you owe him nothing. You owe him nothing. You're not taking one of my children. You're not taking my grandchildren. You're not taking my home. You're not taking my ovary. You're not taking my uterus. Where's Charmaine? They're going to take her whole uterus out. And I said, Charmaine, is that your inheritance? She said, it is not. And I said, then we're going to put faith on it. That devil has no right to that uterus, and he's not taking it. Did he take it? Where is she? No. Oh, she's teaching. She's upstairs. I heard her. I heard somebody. I'm like, where is she? Where's Charmaine? Nothing. Stop making covenants with the devil, Christian. Where's your faith? Where's your faith? Oh, well, pastor, you know, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard. So is laying brick, right? It was even harder for him to give you the right of access to this. He paid for it with blood. Paid for it with blood. Figure it out, Christian. I don't know what I'm doing. So what? Figure it out. Press in until you see it in real time. It's how we operate here. We press in until we see this stuff in real time. I don't want fantasy world. I want real. I want truth. I'm not looking for testimonies from the sweet by and by and the yesteryear or talking about some crazy fantasy of what Jesus, maybe he did it or maybe he didn't. I'm not interested in that. I want fullness. I don't want measure. And I don't know what I'm doing, but we're going to figure it out. We're going to figure it out. And so should you. Rag in your head, knife in your teeth. Who just told me that? I think Corey or Quinn just told me that. 
Same thing, I feel like God's calling me to this thing. And he said, I'm, don't worry, Pastor, I'm putting a rag on and a knife in my teeth. And I'm like, right on. You got to fight. Let's look at, <laughs> you got to fight. Israel did everything wrong. They did everything wrong. The result was they were in starvation and deprivation. Overwhelmed and greatly impoverished. The Bible says that the enemy would come upon the land, and whenever the enemy decided to come, he would come in an overwhelming fashion and take everything from them. <laughs> doesn't sound like my inheritance. doesn't sound like yours. That sounds like Jesus. Not at all. And he left them impoverished. And so what happened was the people were overwhelmed, impoverished, and ready, ready? They were blaming Jesus. It's your fault, Lord. It's your fault. Hey? Bible says, by a man's own foolishness, his life comes to ruin, yet his heart rages against the Lord. By our own stupidity, we train wreck everything, and then we blame the Lord. That's what we do. So the Bible says, Israel was, Judges chapter 6, verse 6, Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And so the children cried out to the Lord. Let me say this to you. Pain is sometimes the only motivator that will get you to call on the Lord. It is amazing to me. I get people coming here and they're like shot out, train wreck, blown up, burnt to the ground. Oh, God, you know, I just blew my life up again. Uh, yeah, okay, I get it. I understand. We all burn it down. Jesus gets, gives beauty for ashes, so give him your ashes. He's going to give you beauty. How many times will he do it? Every single time. But, but aren't you tired of doing that? Aren't you tired of burning your life down? Aren't you tired of limping and carrying wounds without causes? Aren't you tired of that? Yet we do it. As soon as I see it all the time, Christians get built back up after being shattered, and away they go. Away they go. I'm feeling good now. Oons, 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 oons. Yeah, I'm going to be there tonight. Yeah. Right back to the slop. Right? Then they come back. Oh, God. Oh, God. And he heals them because he's good. And he delivers them because he's good. And he sets them free because he's good. And he restores them because he's good. But the ignorant and the foolish, as a dog to its vomit, return right back to their own foolishness, never fully understanding who and what they are. It's like the lepers. Imagine, you have leprosy your whole life. You are a complete cultural pariah. Jesus heals you. And nine, nine out of ten were ungrateful. Only one came back. It's crazy to me. It's absolutely crazy. Sometimes pain is the only motivator that gets you to call on the Lord. They weren't calling on the Lord. So I want to be clear. They were in this situation for seven years before they called on the Lord. Ready? Maybe I hold up seven fingers, right? Seven years. Seven years their lives were being raided. Seven years their lives were being burned to the ground. Seven years the enemy was taking anything he wanted, anytime he wanted. And only after seven years, it says this, and it came to pass. There's verse 7. Verse 7. And it came to pass. Finally, Israel got sick and tired of being sick and tired, and they called on the Lord. It says, when the children of Israel called out according to the Midians, so the Lord, they call out to the Lord because of the Midianites. Lord, the Midianites are terrorizing us. It said, it came to pass that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel. He says, thus says the Lord your God, I'm the one who brought you up out of Egypt. I'm the one who delivered you from your bondage. I delivered you out of every enemy you ever had that ever came against you. And I delivered you from all of your oppression. And I have driven out from you the enemy before your very face. And the only thing I asked you was do not infiltrate yourself with the mindset and the worship of the culture. But you wouldn't listen. That's what the gods are. The gods are the mindset of the culture. The church infiltrates itself with not the mindset of the kingdom, but the mindset of the culture. 
Or even worse, the mindset of the church culture. We have the mind of Christ. The, The mind that I think from is not the world's culture. The vision that I see from is not the world's culture. The vision I see from is not the church's culture. The vision I see from is from the heaven's culture, on earth as it is. This is what we're called to. And you go, how do we do that? Again, that's the question, isn't it? That's the question. That's the quest. That's what we press into. Holy Spirit, teach me to think from the mind of heaven. Holy Spirit, teach me to see as you see. Teach me to understand as you do. Teach me your ways. Teach me who you are. That's the quest. The Lord is going to bring a deliverer, right? Everybody say it with me. But first he sends a prophet. Come on. It all begins with the prophetic, Christian. Before deliverance comes, the word of God is released. God sends a no-name prophet from a no-name town. And he speaks a word into the culture. You think you need a name? You think you need an Instagram that's blowing up? You think you need to come from some big place in your life? You don't. God used a no-name prophet from a no-name town. And that no-name prophet from a no-name town began to prepare the culture for the word that, for the deliverance that God was going to bring to it. No name from nowhere. A nobody from nowhere. Look in the mirror. You don't need to be a somebody from somewhere. Jesus chooses the nobodies from nowhere. Try it. And that's you. And that's me. He's not looking for the, for the materially successful. He's looking for the nobodies who will give him the glory and will stand and not be the ones. He, that's what he's looking for. That's right. Say it. Say it. Come on, say this with me. If he can use a no-name prophet from a nowhere town, he can use me. That's right. I put faith on it. It always begins with the prophetic. You don't need a biggest, baddest prophet. You need a pure word. You don't need a word from the biggest, baddest guy in town. You know? I know a friend of mine, and he says that God always uses the really eclectic person to give me a word. Pastor. He said, the craziest person in the church is the one that prophesies to me. And he's like, and, she, and this is a woman he's talking about. And he's like, and she's always on the money. And she'll come and she'll go, I see the Lord flying over you. He's flying. It's called pedagogues. There's actually a type of prophet that's a pedagogue. They act it out. Ezekiel was a pedagogue. He acted it out. There's ones who speak and there are ones who act it out. Right? Agabus, remember, he tied, he tied the belt in the book of Acts. Pedagogue. Act it out. Ezekiel. He's saying this woman, she always does all this stuff. I just see things flying around you. And the Lord is hovering over your presence. And he's kind of standing there like, okay, I hope nobody's filming this, you know, kind of like that. (laughs) Jesus loves the eclectics. He loves it. Right? John the Baptist, you kidding me? Brother's walking around in camel hair. Right? Eating wild honey. That dude's about as wild as they came. Jesus said, of those born among women, no one was greater than that guy. Crazy, right? We like everything strict and proper, suit, tie, everything reformed. Jesus doesn't have a problem with a little blue hair. He doesn't have a little problem with feathers, flyers, whatever. He doesn't have a problem with it. I'm not saying everybody's like that. I'm not necessarily like that. But, I'm like, but we're like that. Where's Jeremiah? Is he here? He's gone too, right? Come here one time. We're trying to encourage everybody. You know, we're doing this thing. It's coming back. We had this group of guys, and they were all prophesying to each other. One day, I'm walking by, and they're, like, tying a cape on each other. I'm like, what are these guys doing? You know, I'm walking by. And it was like some handmade cape. I don't even know what it was. Made out of palm fronds. It's like a cape out of palm fronds or something. And, and I'm watching them. They're over here, and, they're, and I'm just walking by, and I'm like, huh? And I asked Jeremiah, I said, what were you guys doing over there? 
And he said we were imparting our superhero anointing. That's what we were doing. We were like some sort of spiritual anointing and superpower with a palm frond cape. And they're all praying over each other. Eclectics. Eclectics. You understand? Eclectics. Pedagogies. Acting out the word. So anyway, (laughs) Jesus likes the eclectics Christian. He does. He does. Vain. So they became vain. They became, what happened was is that the people had become culturally relevant or culturally accepted. So they began to worship and activate themselves with the mindset of the culture. So they were culturally accepted. Everybody say culturally accepted, but kingdom irrelevant. Yes. Culturally accepted, but kingdom irrelevant. Right? That's what was going on. And the Midianites, and so the Lord shows up and gives them a prophetic word. And he says to them, the Midianites are not your problem. Then he says this. He's going to tell, he's going to tell uh, Gideon exactly this. I am not your problem, Gideon. You are the problem. The, your circumstances aren't your problem, and I'm not your problem. You are your problem. You've created this mess. You've done what I've told you not to do. You're involving yourself in ways that you know are not correct with me. You've created rhythms and currents in your life that are polluting your land, and yet you blame me? I'm not your problem. The Lord's not your problem, Christian. The Lord's your liberator. He's not your restrictor. He's your freedom giver. The things that he tells you are for life and hope. Courage begins. Say it with me. Courage begins. This is the first point of courage. We live a life of courage. is with a willingness to take personal responsibility. That's where courage begins. Right? You have to take personal responsibility. I created this mess. People, places, and things. No, I didn't do it. The other person did. Well, who, who decided to hang out with that person? Oh, you did? Oh, okay. So there is some personal responsibility there. You chose that relationship. You chose to be with that person in that place, and those things happened. Yes, and some of those things turned on you, but nonetheless, the personal responsibility is yours. We have to take personal responsibility for our lives. That's the first thing. The angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree. There's a whole story on the terebinth tree which I won't. So what this is, is this is a theophany. Angel of the Lord in capital letters. So there's the angel of the Lord, lowercase, and the angel of the Lord, uppercase. It's called a theophany. It's a divine appearing. So Jesus himself is coming on the scene here. He is coming on the scene. Sits under the terebinth tree, which belonged to Joash, the father of Gideon, while Gideon threshed wheat in the wine press. So what's Gideon doing? Everybody say it with me. Wrong thing in the wrong place. He's threshing wheat in a wine press. He's doing the wrong thing in the wrong place. <laughs> and the Lord shows up and looks at him, probably chewing gum or something, chilled out. Looks at Gideon and says, the Lord is with you, man of valor. So Gideon is hiding in a wine press, and he's got this little bit of meal, and he's just like, kind of like this, you know. He's hiding in fear. He's afraid of who he really is, Right? And because he's afraid of who he really is, he's looking for cultural acceptance, and he's doing the wrong thing in the wrong place. And Jesus calls him what he's not long before he gets there. That's what the Lord does for you. He calls you who and what you are long before you're there. You're a daughter. You say, I don't look like a daughter. doesn't matter. Jesus says you're a daughter, therefore you're a daughter. I don't act like a daughter. It doesn't matter. Jesus says you're a daughter. And to, when you start understanding that you're a daughter and living like a daughter, then you'll see the reality of that. But heaven doesn't see you any different. You come to Christ, you're sons and daughters. You're not servants, you're not slaves. It's not what you are. You're sons and daughters. When is that gonna, ha- when is that gonna happen? When are you gonna connect to that? When, is, when, when you start connecting to that and living from that, then things will change. Gideon's in the wrong place at the wrong time, motivated by fear. The Lord tells him to wake up. You're a man of valor, Gideon. Wake up. Is this what I called you to be? 
You're my son. You're in covenant with me. Do you know who you really are? Let me explain to you who you really are. Let me show you who you really are. You're a man of valor. This isn't your inheritance. I did not create you to be plundered. I did not call you to myself to be plundered. You're the head and not the tail, above only and not beneath. Is that not his promise to his people? Yet that's not what's happening here. He summons him to his identity. That's the first thing God does to him. That's the second thing. So the first thing is, is taking personal responsibility. The second aspect of courage is embracing your heaven-born identity. Do you know how hard this is for Christians? Oh, we walk around going, oh, I'm a son and a daughter, I'm a son and a daughter, but we live completely contrary to it, completely opposite of our identity. You may know it, but you need to live from it. So embracing your identity is a different world. That, what does that mean? That means a lot of things. One of the things it means is I'm not accepting anything that's lower than my inheritance. I'm not. Just not. So that comes across as arrogant, Pastor. I didn't give myself the title. I didn't give myself the promises. Jesus gave it to me. You understand that? Well, you're going to see it right here. What happens when Gideon starts to step in? The Lord immediately acknowledges him. Doesn't acknowledge him in his victim state. We all think that Jesus is going to acknowledge us in our victim state. He will never acknowledge you in your victim state. He doesn't, Gideon's a victim. And the Lord tells him he's a man of valor. <laughs> he didn't go, wow, Gideon, you're just a victim. Wow, let me come down here and pat your hand a little bit. Let me stroke you. You okay? You feeling all right? This is what you're feeling? The Lord tells him to rise up. It's crazy. It's a lot of things. You get some people in some desperate situations, right? We all encounter them. They're in desperate situations as Christians, and we want to give them empathy, and we want to give them compassion. You know what Jesus tells them? Get up. Rise up. Rise to the level of your birth. Stand on your feet. Know who you are. Begin to engage with me again. Gideon asked the wrong question. Watch this. He asked the wrong question. Lord's like, get up, man of valor. I'm going to do something with you. Gideon goes, oh, why, God? Why, Lord? Why are we in this circumstance? He literally asks, why do we not see the miracles? And why have you abandoned us to the Midianites? Do you know Jesus does not answer that question at all? Because he doesn't answer why questions. Second service, I'll build on that a little more. Because <laughs> so my wife actually challenged me. She's like, you're trying to tell me that Jesus never answered a why question in the Bible. I said, exactly. It's exactly what I'm trying to tell you. Why could we not cast it out? They asked Jesus. Look at it in the Greek. It doesn't say why at all. It doesn't say why at all. They went to the Lord and they said something prevented us from casting it out. That's the word. It's the Greek word T, right? It doesn't mean there's, it's, there's no why. So when they came to the Lord, when they couldn't cast the devil out, they go, Lord, something prevented us from casting it out. And Jesus said, this kind comes in out, out by, by prayer and fasting. To tell us die. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is not in that? In the original Greek, it's not, it's not in it. My God, my God, for this reason you have forsaken me. For this reason, because the atonement of sin was laid upon me, you have forsaken me. Why? God doesn't answer why prayers, Christian. If you're praying why, you need to change the context of your prayer because he's not going to answer it. He doesn't answer it here. He doesn't answer it. Gideon says, why, why, why? And the Lord goes, get up. He didn't even answer why. Why, 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 why? God tells Gideon, get on your feet. Stand up. Man of valor, take your place. I'm not even having a conversation. You're not a victim. You're a man of valor. You're not a, you're not a slave. You're a son. Get on your feet. We got to get this. This is extremely important. You, you have got to get this because heaven is not seeing you that way. We think that heaven is moved by empathy and compassion. Heaven is not moved by empathy and compassion. Heaven is moved by faith. 
Faith is the currency of heaven. Everything that Jesus wants to do about empathy and compassion, he has done through Christ and through the crucifixion. Everything that the Lord is going to do about empathy and compassion, he has done by releasing his spirit and empowering a body. He's going to do nothing more. Nothing will happen unless the currency of faith is administered. Look around. Look around. Church is completely neutered and powerless because we operate by these principles. We run around going, why? Oh, why, God? Why? He's not answering. He's not answering. We run around with victim postures, victim mentalities. He's not answering. We run around thinking that God's going to be moved by human need. Oh, Lord, just look at her. Look at her, Lord. Oh, look at her condition, God. Oh, just a healing touch, Lord. Look at her condition. Look at how pathetic she is. Oh, God, look at how faithful she is. I've never seen that prayer of healing ever answered. Ever. Father, this is a daughter in the name of Jesus. This is a daughter of the highest. Healing is your birthright. Infirmity is not your birthright. In the name of Jesus, and we begin to speak and prophesy and declare and call forth. And you know what happens? Healing manifests. It's an amazing situation. What? Because we're praying the wrong way. We're positioned the wrong way. And we do it wholesale. Wholesale. I come from a, a miracle-believing church. Only problem was they never saw any. Whoa, 1972, when this church was founded, oh, bless God, we had that one miracle. We had a puppy dog run through the place, and as that puppy dog ran through, people were getting healed. That was the one miracle. I mean, they just like, what? We settle for that. This is what the church is doing, eating grain in a wine press, settling for something that is not our identity, settling for something that is not our inheritance. We do it individually, and we do it corporately within our churches. Not here, not here. I will never lower myself beneath the identity that the Lord has given me. And I will never accept something that is not mine by right of inheritance. You're not giving me that package. I'm not signing for it. I'm not agreeing for it. I'm not making a covenant that I get to keep a third of what God gave me. I'm not making that covenant. It all belongs to me. The gifts and callings of God are without repentance. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning. What God gave me, he doesn't take away. Period. Where's your faith? He tells him, get up. Go forth. And then he asks him the question, what are you waiting for? Have I not sent you? Seven years of famine and poverty. The Lord shows up and he's not crying a tear. He's not patting his hand. He tells him. He summons him to his identity. He summons him to his inheritance. And he commands him to go forth. Go forth. Now all of a sudden he asks the right question. Now you're going to see a different response. Read the story. He asks why. He doesn't get an answer. Now he's going to ask the question in a different way. He asks the Lord, the Lord tells him, I'm going to do this. And he asks, how is this going to be? Oh, now Wonderland just opens up because he asked the right question. Huh? He says, how is this going to happen? The Lord says, I'm with you. He says, I want victory more than you do. It's going to happen, Gideon, because I'm with you. Why is not the posture how, what, when, where is? Why is never the posture? I dare you. Stop praying why prayers. You're not a victim, Christian. You're a victor. Give up your personal excuses. Jesus never ne negotiates with your hopelessness. He never negotiates with your false identity. Oh, God, I'm the least of my father's house. That's what he said. Jesus never told him he was the least in his father's house. Yet Gideon's mentality was he's the least in his father's house. The Lord told him, you're a man of valor. Get on your feet and do what I say. Yet Gideon's response is, oh, I'm the least of my father's house. I'm weak and pathetic. And Jesus doesn't make a covenant with that. He doesn't go, you know what? You're right, Gideon. You're absolutely right. Let me, let, me, let me just affirm your weakness. He doesn't do that. The Lord does not make excuses with or negotiate with your perspectives of hopelessness. He will not. 
God will never come into agreement when you're with hopelessness. You say it's going down. The Lord says, it's going, you're going up. You say, I'm going under. The Lord says, you're going over. Okay? But it doesn't look like that. We make covenants with our environments. We make covenants with our circumstances. Who told you you were going under? Did Jesus tell you that? Who told you you were going to fail? Did Jesus tell you that? If Jesus didn't tell you that you're going to fail, yet you believe it, what you believe is a lie, and it's in your soul, it's, and you're being guided by it. That's what happens. Christians have, have lies within their souls, within the subconscious that need to be healed and need to be delivered from. It's not in their mind. It's in their soul. We believe things, yet our lifestyles go in different directions. There's an incongruency between the way we live and what we say we believe. And the reason that that is is because there's lies. It's not, it's not by will. A lot of times it's not even an issue of will. It's a man of hour. Then watch this. So God says, to, God says to Gideon, we're talking about courage, right? Give up your personal excuses. So he tells him, first thing you got to do, well, one of the things you got to do is you got to embrace your identity. And then he says, then you gotta, and then the first thing you got to do is you have to, um, what did I do? I came losing my place here. God tells him to embrace his identity, give up your personal excuses. The third thing he tells him to do is offer excellence. He didn't tell him to offer this. God didn't tell him. So what happens here is Gideon is looking and he's saying, Lord, if, if you're going to do this, then I want to make a pledge to you. It's not even the word offering. This again in the Hebrew. If you read these words, if you study these words out, it really frames the, the story different. So God says, Gideon, I'm going to do something great with your life. Anybody want God to do something great with your life? Anybody? Anybody out there want God to do something great with your life? You're going to see it right here, right? And so God says to him, Gideon, I want to do something great with your life. But you've got to get rid of your false identities, and you've got to be willing to take personal responsibility. That's the first two steps. And the third thing, what happens is Gideon says, if this is of you, Lord, then I want to make a pledge to you. And so Gideon goes and gets a young ram and a kid. So the word, the word in the Hebrew is, is a kid or ram. This is interesting. So what, does, what exactly is Gideon offering the Lord? Right? Gideon is going to make something, he's going to offer the Lord something, but what is he offering him? He's offering him a kid or a ram. It's the, this, this particular word, there's like four different words for ram or goat in the Bible, and this word is used for the offering of a king. That's the first one. It was also considered excellence. So, what is Gideon saying? I'm offering you my excellence. I am pledging to you my excellence. The very best that I am, I am pledging to you. That's the language in the Hebrew. And then he offered it with unleavened bread, without self-intent. He said, Lord, I'm giving you my very best, and I'm putting no self-intent upon this. I'm offering the very best of me, and I'm, off, and I'm putting nothing upon it. I'm making no personal requests upon it, merely giving you that. And the Lord says, lay it on the rock. And the Lord says, you're pledging me your excellence without self-intent. You know what happens? The Bible says that Jesus touched it with a staff, and it went on fire. The Lord says, I offer you my fire. Huh? You want the fire of God? You want the Lord to burn upon your destiny? You want the God, Lord of God to burn upon your purpose and upon something for your life? And the promise that God has made to you, you want to see it? Offer him your very best without selfish intent and let him ignite it with fire. That's what he did. He touched it with a stick and burst into flame. Fourth thing is tear down your family altars or tear down your idols. Ha, 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 ha. So after this, ready? You guys ready for this? This is, this is where it gets painful. And he t basically, he's telling Gideon, the next step's not going to be easy for you. <laughs> Take personal responsibility. Embrace your identity. Offer me your excellence without intent. We're all like, yes, Lord. Yes. Oh, hallelujah. Yes. Then he tells him, I want you to tear down the altars. I want you to tear down the altars that were built by your fathers. 
All of the ways that you've been doing things, all of the ways that the culture have done things, all of the ways that have been done, I want you to tear it down. And so, and so basically God is saying, I want you to get rid of all your idols. What are your idols? Anybody know what an idol is? Anything you have to check with before obeying the Lord is your idol. Anything you bow to before you bow to Jesus, anything you have to ask permission from before you go to Jesus is your idol. Well, the Lord wants me to do this. Well, let me go check with my fear of man and see if this is going to be socially accepted. You have an idol. You fear people more than you fear God. You don't want to do it because God's, you may not be accepted. They may defriend you. They may make a bad comment about you, right? Anything that you bow to before you bow to Jesus is your idol. And the Lord says, tear it down. Well, let me check my schedule. Here's another one. <laughs> Lord, now if you tell me to do that in like six months, I'll try to clear you a window here. You have an idol of your time, Christian. Ouch. Let's just say it together. Ouch. There we go. We got that out of the way. Then he say, oh, Lord, I want you to do this. The Lord tells you you want to do this. Well, let me check my bank account. Let me see if I'm financially viable at this time. Anything you bow to before you bow to Jesus is your idol. Anything you consult before you, before you obey Jesus is your idol. The master passion that drives your life. Anything that you hold higher than him. The Lord said, I want to tear it down. Tear it down. He says, this is not going to be easy. He had to tear down what was familiar to him. That's the family idol. His dad had built an altar to Baal, right? And the Lord said, tear that down. Tear down what's familiar to you. Tear down the mentalities, the mindset, and the cultural beliefs that you've had your whole life. I want you to tear it down. I want you to completely rip everything you think you know to the ground. I want you to rip everything you think you understand to the ground. I want you to get rid of every association that influences you that is not mine. And then he tells him to rebuild the altar. So he said, I want you to tear it down, and now I want you to build it the way that I said. Some of us, that's a word for us. Whatever it is we've built that isn't functioning, we need to tear it down and build it the way Jesus wants to build it. Right? And then he tells him to offer a bullock, which is another interesting offering. He offers a bull. The bull was the offering of the priest. So we have the goat or the ram was the offering of the king. And so we have the, and then he tells him to offer a bull. And he offers a bull on it. So he tears it down. He does it at night because, you know, he's afraid during the day somebody's going to kill him. And after he tears this thing down, after he completely tears down this altar, rebuilds it and reestablishes a purity of motive and heart before the Lord and gets rid of everything and says, I don't want any of this anymore, Jesus. I only want you. After he does this, the Lord changes his name. Isn't that interesting? This is one of the only places in the Bible where God changes his name. He changed Isaac's name. He changes Gideon's name here. He changed him to Jerubal, and it means contender. <laughs> and the Lord goes, now I've got a contender. Now I've got somebody I can deal with. Now I've got somebody who will get in the ring and mix it up. Now I've got something here. A guy who will listen to me. A guy who's willing to tear down the familiar. Who's willing to stop making personal excuses. A guy who's willing to embrace his identity. A guy who's willing to offer me his excellence without personal intent and do it the way that I said. Now I've got a contender. You're not Gideon anymore. You're Jerobel. You're a contender. <laughs> Crazy. And then after this moment, you're going to get it here in a second, and we're going to wrap it up. I want you to see what courage looks like. This is what courage looks like. So after Gideon did this and the Lord renamed him, he did something that hadn't happened in Israel for a long time. He picked up the shofar which is the ram's horn, and he blew the shofar, right? Spiritual assembly, spiritual awakening, lots of context with shofar. And as soon as Gideon blew the shofar, it was to summon the tribes of Israel to war. That was one of the reasons why they blew the shofar. But it, what's interesting is when, is when Gideon blows the shofar, 
Uh, Judah didn't gather immediately. Manasseh didn't, uh, the, the tribes didn't gather immediately. There was a group of people that gathered immediately. They were called the Azurites. Well, who the heck are the Azurites? Well, who they are is an, it's, it's a prophetic understanding of what God is doing. He blew the shofar. Azurite means strength of the father. And so as soon as Gideon took these steps, positioned himself, and blew the trumpet, saying, things are changing, this is where it happens, the strength of the father assembled in front of him, behind him. Isn't that crazy? It wasn't Judah's strength that assembled behind him first. It wasn't Manasseh's strength or anyone. Issachar's, any of the 12 tribes didn't assemble first. It was the Azurites, who are these unknown people, and their name simply means this father's strength. The father's strength is what gathered behind him. Could it be? You're waiting on the strength of the Father. Could it be that God is calling you to something greater? And the Lord says, game on. It's crazy. As soon as he blew the shofar, the Israelites came, the, the Midianites crossed the river and tried to invade again. This is where it all begins. God's like, I got a contender. Game on. Bring it. He brought them. They can bring those Midianites over now. Yeah, you guys come on over. Because I got a contender. I got somebody I can work with. I haven't had somebody to where I could work with in a decade. But now I got somebody I can work with. And now we're going to see things change. So what does courage look like? Let's just say this, a willingness to take personal responsibility. Let me just give you some grace here. Personal responsibility isn't a blame game. Oh, I'm a loser, I'm a loser, I'm a loser. No, it just means to say this is my problem and I'm not living with this problem anymore. I'm changing it. This is my mindset and I'm not living with this mindset anymore. I'm going to change it. That's what it means. That's what it means. When God shows you something, he's never showing you something to hurt you. He's only showing you something to harm you. He shows you, Kevin, this is wrong. What you're doing here is wrong, not in a condemning way. He's saying, but you're hurting yourself. I want you to change it. So when we take personal responsibility, we just simply look at our lives and say, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. If I want what I never had, I've got to do what I've never done. So I'm getting rid of all this stuff, and I'm going a different way. That's what it looks like. Summoning into your identity. I will never again lower myself beneath the standard that God has placed upon me. I will never again assume an identity that another place is upon me. I, I don't have the right to define me. No one has the right to define me. The only one who defines me is Jesus. He loves me on my worst day. He is for me, never against me. I'm a son of the highest on my worst day. You have to embrace that. And then you have to offer your excellence. Most of us want to make an offering to God, but we got conditions, right? We put some conditions on that. Well, I'm going to, you know, I'll kind of offer this, but, you know, i got to put some conditions on that now before I go offer. You know, you want all the, well, Lord, you know, I'll do it, but, you know, I just got to, let me just give you my wish list here. Why won't you offer your excellence without self-intent and see what he does? Why don't you take that on instead of giving God, like, all these conditions that he needs to meet before you'll do whatever it is or whatever it may be. And then you have to tear down what is false. What is false. What is the familiarity that you've lived with? What is the familiarity that you've, you've sort of, you know, built around your life? A lot of times people will just forsake God for their families. God told Gideon, tear it down. Tear it down. I don't care what your family says. Tear it down. I don't care what your family believes. Tear it down. If your family believes something different than what I'm saying, tear it down. That's a hard call. It's a hard call for a lot of people. You know, we're called unto our Father first. Our family is in the room, Christian. If your family walks with Jesus, all the better. But we are to follow the cultural influences of the kingdom and not the cultural influences that are around us. This is what brings the glory into our lives. And when we step into the courage, then God can manifest his kingdom. God cannot bring the strength of the Father behind you because you've not, you're doing all these crazy things. Take a stand. Anybody want this? Anybody want this? Right? This is what we want. Right? We want to be sons and daughters. We want to be people who say, look, okay, I screwed that up. All right, it's not a big deal. I'm changing that. I'm not doing that anymore. You know, I'm sick and tired of this product in my life. I want something different. 
want something. I don't care what it takes. I don't care what it takes. Let's pray. Stand on your feet. We'll pray. I was going to write a prayer, but I didn't. I didn't but I'm going to pray. So we're going to go by faith. <laughs> you should just open up your hearts. You should say this. Holy Spirit, I give you permission to show me the areas of my life that are causing error. The areas of my life that are allowing the enemy to take from me that which is not mine to give. Holy Spirit, I give you permission to validate my identity to me. I will never again lower myself beneath the identity that you have established. I will never again allow another to lower me beneath the identity that you have established. I am a son or a daughter on my worst day because of the blood of Jesus. I will live like a son. I will act like a daughter. All of those things. I will be about my father's business. Ready? Now it's going to get a little dangerous. Holy Spirit, I offer you my excellence. I offer you the very best of me. I give you permission to call upon it, and I offer it without self-intent. I place no conditions upon this offering. And I ask you, Lord, as you did with Gideon, to set it on fire. I tear down everything that is false, Lord, every false belief system, every false relationship, everything that is not of you, Lord. And I offer you a priestly offering, true worship, and I ask you to put truth in the place of all of the falsities in my life. Show me the falsities that I live by. Show me the lies that I live by. Show me the areas that are influencing my life that don't come from you and establish truth in those places. I give you permission to do this in Jesus' name, and I call forth your kingdom into the environment of courage that is established through these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God loves you. We love you. <laughs> All right. We have a prayer team available. If you need prayer or anything this morning, I'm going to bless you one time and head out. And you guys got a few minutes in between the service. Meet and greet each other. Say some wonderful things. But let me bless you one more time. Say, so what do we do now? Just open up your spirit and just say, yes, Jesus. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you in every way. And may he give you peace. And may you forever live within his favor in Jesus' name. Jesus loves you. We love you. Have a great week.